victory at all costs and in spite of all terrors. Victory, however long and hard the road may be, for without victory, there is no survival. Thus reads an excerpt from The Guardian's political correspondent on Tuesday, May 14, 19, and 40. At the outset of the Second World War, the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill sought to rouse his country's fervor against what would become later the Axis powers threatening the world. And in order to spur them on, he urged victory at all costs. He urged blood, sweat, and tears to be shed so victory could be accomplished. Yet in the end, even at that moment, all Mr. Churchill could really do was urge on his people, right? He could not assure them the final victory. He could not even assure them survival. So is the case with any military or political figure throughout history. Sometimes the victory is very much in doubt. Other times it may look more promising, but at all times, victory is uncertain. There's only one who can guarantee the victory. There's only one who can assure success against his enemies. And to see that one, we come this morning to Exodus chapter 17. So we've been working through this book of Exodus, written about the events surrounding God's people Israel in the 15th century B.C. We've seen God lead his people out of slavery in Egypt, and we find them now in the wilderness. Over the past month, we've seen them face hunger and thirst and division. Yet their God, Yahweh, his personal name shown in your English translations as Lord, all caps, Yahweh, has come through. He has provided again and again and again. However, in this passage, they encounter a new threat. So as they face a flesh and blood enemy, they are exposed in all their weakness and vulnerability. Victory seems to be in doubt. Who can assure them of success? With our time together this morning, let's see three things from the passage Mary Ellen has just read for us. A new enemy, a weak leader, and a powerful God. A new enemy, a weak leader, and a powerful God. So first, a new enemy, verse 8. Then this guy, or this army, Amalek, came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Remember, Rephidim is the place we left off two weeks ago in verse 7. It's the place God miraculously provided his thirsty people with water to quench their thirst. But before they leave, another threat looms on the horizon. Kind of frying pan to the fire experience. This enemy is not starvation, but military force. It's the army of Amalek. Back in Genesis chapter 36, we see who Amalek is. He's the grandson of Esau. And Esau is the brother of who? Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel. So we see here, in a way, a battle of brothers. Remember, God had blessed and favored Jacob. He had not so much with Esau. 
The lines between those two brothers had diverged, and God's blessing was definitely with one of them and not with the other. Jacob have I loved, Esau I have hated. My life verse. And so here's a, a battle between their lines. I, I think we can even, though, take this back further to the Garden of Eden to the enmity between the line of Eve and the line of the serpent. What one author says, Amalek here represents the seed of the serpent rising up against the seed of Eve. This continues all throughout the Bible until Revelation, which Stan read for us earlier. Again, the two are pitted against each other here, and we wonder again, who will win this go-around? So a little background on the Amalekites. At this time, it's thought that they lived in the northern part of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, it, they might have been somewhat nomadic. It seems like a regular practice for them was kind of spring attacks on other peoples in order to plunder their goods. But we don't really, we're not given a, a reason for why they attack Israel here. But we do know one thing. We do know that they have no respect for Yahweh. We see that later in Moses' words in the 25th chapter of Deuteronomy. There Moses tells Israel, remember, this is years later, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you're faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. The Amalekite army here in Exodus 17 is attempting to pick off the vulnerable and the weak among Israel. They do not fear Yahweh. They seek their own success. And Israel, well, they're not ready for this sort of warfare. I mean, they've been desperate for nourishment. There in Deuteronomy, Moses had said that they were weak and faint and weary. They've been desperate for nourishment. They're in the wilderness. We had seen them at threatened by an army last time at the Red Sea. And at that point, they did nothing. God had had to win that for them, despite them. So what are they to do now? Outnumbered, outstrengthed by Amalek. Verse 9. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So we're introduced first time here to a guy named Joshua. We'll later learn he's Moses' assistant. In fact, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, when Moses dies, Joshua will be the one to take God's people into the promised land. And here, Joshua, first time we see him, he's entrusted with military preparations while Moses pursues a bit of a different tact for victory. So he says he's going to take his brother Aaron and another guy named Hur, up a hill to view the battle. Seems like a great plan, Moses. But look what he takes with him. The staff of God. We've made a bit of this staff of God, and for good reason. You might remember even two weeks ago when we saw the beginning of Exodus 17 that this staff represents God's power. It, it doesn't reveal Moses to be anything special in and of himself per se it's the symbol the representation of Yahweh's authority Yahweh's judgment Yahweh's salvation remember earlier in that chapter we saw this staff strike a rock in judgment and save God's people from their thirst 
And now as Amalek approaches, Moses' battle plan kind of hinges again on that staff, on Yahweh. So verse 10, Joshua, I don't know if he thought this was strange or not, but he obeys. He gathers men. He takes them out to fight the army of Amalek, while 80-year-old Moses and his two companions trek up the hill to observe. I think it's interesting that we don't see anything here about Israel grumbling or complaining, right? I mean, that's kind of been the theme of the last three studies. I don't think that's necessarily because they didn't do that. I mean, we've known Israel quite a bit recently, and it seems like this would be a great opportunity to bicker and to call for Moses' head. Instead, I wonder if Moses, as he wrote this, placed an emphasis purposely not on Israel's sin this time around, but on Israel's God. He points out that there are two battle lines drawn up against Amalek. So below in the sort of plain are Joshua and his men, but the other battle line is up on the mountain. Moses and his staff. And it's about to go down. So second point to consider then, a weak leader. Look in verse 11. So dawn has broken, the battle has begun, and Moses stands on the hill to watch. And we read that whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. And so implied here is that Moses' hand is gripping what? It's, it's gripping the staff of God, right? And so it's clear that Yahweh is a warrior in this battle. Moses has not gone up on the hill to retreat from danger, He's gone up there to represent Israel's God in the battle. And when he raises his hand with that staff, thus demonstrating this complete power and authority of Yahweh, Joshua's troops gain success against the Amalekites and make great strides in the fight. But when he drops his hand, Amalek pushes forward. They increase in might and they begin to get the best of Joshua. This isn't magic. This isn't a sort of like Moses says Gandalf, right? Holding up a wand and making sure everything pans out below. This isn't a spell Moses is casting on Amalek with this wand. This is simply a weak leader holding a powerful representation of the power of God to wage war on behalf of the people of God. It's a symbol. But in verse 12, there's a problem, a big problem. Moses' hands grew weary. Notice there in verse 11, it's his hand, singular, that's holding the staff. But now in verse 12, it's his hands, plural, holding the staff. He's growing weaker. He's had to use both hands now. This is tough work. I mean, imagine watching a game this afternoon and seeing the NFL referee signal touchdown and then keeping it like that for 12 hours, right? It's impossible. And so Moses' arms begin to droop. He grows weary. So is God's victory in jeopardy because of the weakness of his leader? Well, in God's mercy, Moses isn't alone, is he? He has two men at his side. 
and they come to his aid. There in verse 12, Aaron and her take a stone, and they have Moses sit on it. And then while he rests on his new seat, they each grip one of his arms and keep the staff elevated as the battle rages on, their arms growing weak as well. I think Moses up on that hill is a, is a sort of a snapshot, a, a microcosm of what's taking place on the battlefield. See, both Moses and Israel are weak. They are weary and fatigued, lacking the power to win the battle. And and notice here, Christian, as we apply this to our lives, remember at the Red Sea, they didn't fight. They stood still while God conquered. That's the story of our salvation. We do nothing. God does everything. But here we see Joshua fights. Israel fights. Christian, you and I fight. Our faith is not a passive one. It is an active one. We must wage war with our enemy. But we're weak. Moses, Israel, you and I are weak. But we belong to Yahweh. Yahweh is this people's hope and victory. That's made abundantly clear in the correlation between the elevation of the staff and the domination of the enemy. So when that staff goes up, the victory is won. When God's authority is revealed, the victory is won. What we see here, beloved church, is God's weak people in the wilderness depending on him for victory over their enemies. God is using these feeble people to accomplish victory through his power. So church, family, do you see the application for us? As followers of Christ in the wilderness, our our deliverance from judgment behind us in Egypt, per se, and our sight set on the promised land ahead of us in Canaan, we grow weary. We often find ourselves weak and unable to go on. Christian, if you don't feel weak now, you have in the past and you will again, probably soon. Weakness is part and parcel of being a Christian. So as we face temptations, as we face the onslaught of our chief enemy, Satan himself, who Amalek in a way personifies here, as we face trials that seek to destroy our trust in God, we will find ourselves at times extremely weak. And that weakness manifests itself in different ways for each of us. Maybe for you it's a battle in depression. Maybe it's a loss of physical health. Maybe it's financial insecurity day to day, week to week. Maybe it looks like experiencing loss in your family relationships or your workplace. Maybe it looks like those heartaches of the soul that only you know. Or the weariness of battling that same temptation over and over and over again. Weakness is no stranger to the Christian. But I think we can be reminded here of the good design of the community of believers, of the church. See, Moses is not alone on the mountain, is he? He, 
brought along his close companions. And so as he weakens, they uphold him. As his strength wanes, their strength props him up. As his arms sag, their arms provide support. So Christian, are you weary this morning? Are you feeling acutely your weakness as you face the battles of your walk in Christ? Perhaps you're a mom who's kind of at the end of her rope, feeling like you have nothing left to give your family. Perhaps you're a student. You've poured yourself out in both work and relationships, seeking to live sacrificially, but being left now feeling like a wrung-out rag, limp and powerless. Perhaps you're a Christian who is struggling with a particular temptation, and you just feel beaten down by the lusts of your flesh. Be reminded here that life in the wilderness is not life in isolation. Life in the wilderness is hard, but it's not a life of isolation. When you face weakness, you can't go it alone. You can't do it without the power of God, of course. But I think here specifically, we're reminded, you're not meant to do it without the help of the people of God. By his grace, our Lord Jesus Christ has so constructed his body, the church, his people, to live together in community in order to encourage and challenge one another. And even in that, we're weak, aren't we? We don't always care for one another as we ought. We're often selfish or removed or manipulative. Still, though, how does that negate the importance of Christ's design for the church, for us, for Loudoun Valley Baptist Church? Are you weak this morning? Lean on others. Invest in relationships in this local church and find trusted brothers and sisters who can support you, prop you up when you can sit up no longer, uphold you in prayer when you can't hold yourself up any longer. As elders, we hope to lead out in this, but remember, this is the job of the church, to hold one another up. I wonder if maybe you've been hurt by the church before by the Christian community. And it often takes a lot of courage for you to even show up and be a part of church, let alone open up to others. There's scars there. Let me just remind you gently that the church is not meant to be your savior. The church, I mean, look around. The church is merely a group of weak sinners whom the savior has redeemed and is transforming slowly at times all of us into victorious saints. Jesus is your Savior, but in this time of journeying towards heaven, in this time of the wilderness, he's joined us to his body, the church. And he's committed to refining his church, refining you. And one day, one day, he will present his church pure and blameless without defile or spot forever before his Father. That's the destiny of the church. Don't you want in on that? What a destiny that's assured us. If you've had a hard time plugging into this church, I understand. 
And I encourage you to talk to those you trust about that. Talk to me about that if you'd like. Talk to Brad or Joe or other elders. We earnestly and pray as elders often for the health of this church, and that includes seriously taking the job of shepherding members into, me- into relationships that will flourish their health in Christ. We would count it a joy to consider with you how you might be growing in relationships in this body. And members, as an aside, let me just exhort you to remember that one of the ways we support one another in this church is by attending members meetings. All right, there's my plug. Uh, So we meet only four times a year to think carefully about how to love and support one another. Uh, Tonight, as we said before, is our fall members meeting over at Hamilton Baptist at 5 p.m., We'll consider some serious things in the life of our church and pray that God would be at work in us. So as these, me- as these meetings come along, write them down in your calendar and make them a priority as we build up this body of Christ and support those who are weak and suffering. All right, look there at the end of verse 12 then. Moses' hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And because of that, Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with a sword. Yahweh has the victory, and that leads us to our final point this morning. So we've seen a new enemy. We've seen a weak leader. Now we see a powerful God, really the the crux of this entire passage. So, So Amalek there is routed by Joshua's forces. He's trounced. He's shellacked by Joshua's army. And it hadn't, as we just said, it hadn't ultimately been a sword that had won, but a staff that had brought the victory. I love how Alec Matir puts it. He says, the fight may have taken place in the valley, but the victory was won on the mountain. And church, as another author points out, I think this should bring to mind another battle on another mountain. Centuries later, where Jesus on the cross faced our greatest enemy and vanquished him. That was the true victory. That was the victory for our souls. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's the news of the gospel. That God is a God of perfect justice and that as such, he brings vengeance on his enemies because he is good. But the surprising twist, church people, okay, church folk, is that we are actually his enemies. But we have rebelled against him and deserve his wrath for our rebellion. We don't come to church this morning to remind each other how good we are. We come to remember how great God is, how gracious he has been with sinners, with with rebels like you and me. In his mercy, he sent his son to die on the cross for us while we were still his enemies. So that our enemy status, our enemy judgment could be put on Christ, not us. And then Jesus rose again three days later, later, proving God's plan to save had succeeded. So if you will repent of your sin and place your trust in the death of Christ in your place, you will be saved turn today. Cease being God's enemy and become his beloved child. If you have questions about that, I encourage you to bring them up and not let them stew. 
talk to me after the service, talk to somebody around you that maybe looks less intimidating now that I've, well, I've shaved the beard off, so hopefully I feel a little bit less intimidating now. Come talk to me, talk to anybody else. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to follow Christ. There in verse 14, it's been a whole day and night of anxiety and uncertainty for Israel, and now it's over. Amalek's done. But God's not done. God's not done teaching his people about his character. He says to Moses there, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And if you stop there, you're thinking, oh, he's, going, he's talking about writing this war story down. And that might in part be true. But what's he really after? He says, write this down, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. He says again in verse 16, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And all that proves true, friends. You can look this afternoon at Numbers 14. Less than a year later, when Amalek strikes Israel again, this time with much more success. Then you can look at 1 Samuel 15, where King Saul is commanded to completely wipe out all of Amalek, but disobeys and rebels against the Lord. And then you can look again at 1 Samuel 30, as David and his men return and find their city Ziklag ravished and all the people taken away by who? Amalek. And you can keep reading and see David pursue him and destroy everything except 400 guys who somehow make it away on camels, right? You can read into First Chronicles and see more. The fight goes on. Church, Yahweh is serious about this. He's serious about defeating his enemies, And so as Israel proceeds into the rest of their history, he's making sure that his promise to blot out this one enemy will not be forgotten. It's put down on paper. Amalek will be blotted out. Yahweh has spoken. Christian, your God has enemies. Your God has enemies. He is judge and warrior. He defeats those who rebel against him. And I think all of us at certain times have shrunk back from that vision of God. It might be well we should. This God is not comfortable. He is a wrathful, vengeful judge. If we recoil at that, I think it's because we don't know what it's like to be God. To be perfectly holy and confronted with sin. We're just far too comfortable with our sin. God declares judgment on Amalek because he's good and they're evil. But I think there's something more here to see. Something a little bit more positively strung. Because I think God also is declaring judgment on Amalek because he loves his people. See, Amalek is a threat to his covenant people. His covenant promises to lead them to Canaan. And so as a God who is faithful to his people and to his promises, he must, he will, and he can defeat anyone who stands in their way. That's how much God loves his people. That's how much God loves his own faithful covenant with his people. As Israel continues into the wilderness where further threats await them, they will learn to rely on this God, this warrior king, 
who will fight for them, who will be that strong one to defend them and protect them and lead them home. I think that's a glimpse of God's character we see there in verse 15. Moses builds an altar to worship God. He, He names the altar, the Lord is my banner. We've seen a good amount of names handed out recently, I think. Mara, Masa, Meribah, Manna. I think Moses was a Baptist. There, I'll start with M. But, but unlike those names reflecting the grumbling of God's people, here we see a name revealing the character of God himself. He is the banner of his people. So, in battle, in the chaos and horror that is war, a banner is a sign. A sign of regrouping, reuniting, re-strengthening for the troops. But for Israel, their banner would not ultimately be a flag or something, something akin to a flag. Their banner would be God. The scholar Tim Chester says this, a banner or standard was what soldiers looked to in battle. It was the rallying point, the sign by which the army stood firm. But the banner to which Israel looks is not held by Joshua on the battlefield, but by Moses on the hill. The banner is God himself. God in Christ is our rallying point, our standard, our sign of victory. Church, it will feel like sometimes we're losing. Personally, you may feel you're just too weak to continue the battle of your faith. But the battle is yours to fight, not ultimately yours to win. The battle, Christian, is yours to fight, but not yours to ultimately win. Because it's already been won. Yes, you will have sin struggles that you will seek to have victory over, but the ultimate war for your soul has been secured. The victory belongs to Christ. So when you've lost your way, look to your banner. When you're struck and, and hurt and confused in the chaos of the battles of your life, look to the standard. Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Look to the one before whom nations tremble, as we'll sing in a moment, but who gave up his right to power in order to suffer in your place as God's enemy so your victory could be assured and you could be made his friend. Look to him. Look to his cross and persevere. Look to him to re-energize your faith. Look to him and remember that your future is very much secure. Churchill could not assure victory. He could only urge it on, but our Lord Jesus urges it on and will secure it forever. Christian, you will have the victory because you belong to the victor. Go forward in that strength, even in your weakness. Let's pray together. Lord, we do praise you for your great power and justice. We thank you that when it comes to you, victory is assured.
So we pray in light of that truth that you would humble us. Cause us to rely greatly on you. Give us hearts that readily acknowledge your holy anger against your enemies and then give us the desire to reach out to those who remain your enemies. Telling them the wrath is coming. Telling them that the door of salvation remains open. Lord, we pray that as a church, as Christians in this community, we would rejoice all the more in the character of the Lord as our banner in the fight, but we pray also that you would bring in others from the other side. The allegiance of those we love who are lost around us would be switched from their own kingdom to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us now as we sing of your power and your mercy for your people. In Jesus' name.